I think the trap as an entrepreneur is to always say, hey, it's so important that we do these six things well. And long-term, at scale, it probably is. But when you're first trying to get traction, sometimes it's okay just to be great at one thing. So some of those, like get like relearning those lessons that I've probably, I've probably told other entrepreneurs that 8,000 times over the last 10 years, but doing it yourself is, it's a different thing. It just is. That's how success happens. From Entrepreneur Magazine, my name is Robert Tuckman. I self-funded, built up, and eventually sold two businesses to major players in the sports and entertainment industry. And I am fascinated by other entrepreneurial minds and what drives high-achieving people. So on this podcast, we're going to learn what they've learned and what it takes to really succeed. Dave Finocchio is the founder and former CEO of Bleacher Report, a digital media company centered around all sports culture and content. Dave connected millions of sports fans with curated content on Bleacher Report's social media platforms using innovative sports media consumption strategies. In 2012, Bleacher Report was acquired by Turner Broadcasting for a reported $215 million. After stepping away from Bleacher Report in 2019, Dave, with digital media veteran Anna Robertson, co-founded The Cooldown in 2021. The company focuses on engaging in further conversations on climate change and climate tech to create actionable change. In this episode of How Success Happens, I sat down with Dave to discuss the beginnings of Bleacher Report and his new company, The Cooldown. I started by asking him about his biggest influences growing up and what encouraged him to become an entrepreneur. More from our guest, but first, a word from our sponsors. Whether you need digital tools so you can bank on the go, or you need a one-on-one with an experienced business banker, with PNC Bank, you got it. PNC's business banking team is built entirely around the way you like to do business. Innovative mobile tools that let you manage your cash flow, monitor your payments, and more around the clock. Give you the flexibility that every business owner needs. And PNC combines those digital tools with a team of business bankers who are ready to sit down and talk about the unique needs of your business and help you develop personalized strategies to move your business forward. Learn how PNC Bank can make a difference for you and your business at pnc.com slash bank your way. PNC Bank, National Association member, FDIC. Thanks for having me. Yes, I did. I grew up in a suburb of San Jose, California. In, uh, I'm 39. I grew up in sort of the, during different boom and bust cycles of, uh, of Silicon Valley. My dad worked in in that industry, he worked for big companies in Silicon Valley mostly. But I, I would say growing up there, I probably thought I looked at the world a little bit more through the lens of what's something I'm passionate about that could be better than it is. And you're surrounded by people who have started companies or who are working for companies developing new products. And I think growing up in that area does instill a mindset that maybe people who grew up in other areas have to work harder to sort of at least at that point in time, had to work harder to sort of get to, for sure. Yeah. And, and you know, I know you ended up going to Notre Dame. What was your... Why'd you choose Notre Dame? I mean, it's 
iconic school, of course. And I assume you're a sports fan, but in any case, what was the choice that made you uh, go there? Yeah, I've been a sports junkie like been since I was four years old. One of my dad's running buddies basically like taught me to read when I was a little kid. Um, it, was a, it was a pretty common story, you know, starting with box scores and working my way up to game recaps. And I, I woke up at 5.45 or 6 in the morning every single day forever to be up with my dad and read the sports page. And that was that was my ritual in life. And I was just... I play every sport imaginable. I follow every sport. It's just, it's just been a huge part of my life. And when I was a junior in high school, my dad and I went on a college tour to go check out different colleges around the country. I, I wanted to go to school outside of California, have a different experience. And, and we were going to go look at Northwestern in Chicago. And one of my dad's good buddies went to Notre Dame and, and he basically said, well, if you're going to go to Northwestern, Notre Dame's, you know, basically next door, which it's not at all. It's <laughs> two and a half hours if there's any traffic. But, you know, Dave, I know you pretty well. You should go check it out. And I got on that campus and it's, I don't know if you've ever been there, but I, I think it's one of the most beautiful campuses in the country. It's a super special place. It happened to be like 73 and sunny that day. And we had the best tour guide of all time. But it just... <laughs> it just made me feel different than any other experience I had checking out a campus and the sports part of it mattered so much to me, like being in a place where that just had that kind of history and that spirit. And also the intramural sports at Notre Dame are incredible. Like there's nothing else like it, or there are few other places like it. So that was just a really good fit for, for me, for who I was when I was 17 or 18 years old. Yeah, that's a great choice. And growing up, just going back to growing up near San Jose, were there, you know, certain teams you, you rooted for individuals, but like, are you a diehard? Obviously there's some really good teams now close by in the NBA, but back in the day, that wasn't the case. Yeah. I grew up as a diehard Giants and 49ers fan. And then also a Warriors fan, for sure. When I was a kid, the 49ers were in the midst of an all-time great dynasty. After the 49ers would lose a game, I literally wouldn't talk to anybody for 36 hours. It would make me so upset. I was that. I was one of that those kids. My dad took me to so many Giants games. Uh, I was at the World Series in 1998 during the earthquake. And then the, the Warriors thing is really interesting because we it's hard to describe, but the Warriors are the one team... That's a has was a collective team in the Bay Area. Our other teams, if you put the Sharks aside, but for football and baseball, there was a split, and they were sort of always this underdog team. And uh, um, and there was just there's like this weird underdog mentality around basketball in the Bay Area, and the Warriors were always popular despite being bad. So yeah, I've been a lifelong Warriors fan, and I have uh, absolutely reveled in everything that's happened the past uh, you know almost ten years now. It's been amazing. Oh God, yeah, you guys have had it good, and I know the feeling. On Unfortunately, I'm from the East Coast and a diehard New York Jets fan, and I haven't really had much enjoyment over over the years. But when I see Golden State do well and I see, you know, the Kansas City Chiefs win the Super Bowl or, you know, I start getting hope. But that for me as a diehard sports fan as well, I just want to see him go to the Super Bowl. I don't care if they win or lose. I will be the happiest guy and I will be able to die in peace. So yeah. well, good luck with that. <laughs> Hopefully Zach Wilson uh, turns his attention from, you know, moms to, uh, <laughs> and, and uh, gets off to a good start. Yeah. We'll, we'll see. I'm not holding my breath as I never have, but take me back. So I guess you're at Notre Dame. Was that where you came up with the genesis of the business for, for Bleacher Report? 
Yeah, I was a second semester senior at Notre Dame. I think it was January or February. It was cold. I was honestly like sort of getting tired of going to bars every night. And I lived in an off-campus apartment building with, um, you know, my buddies I'd lived with for years. And I, I was just like sort of started to get this internal sense of like, I want to do something. And I I'd interned at an investment bank in New York the summer previously. I got a job offer and I actually sort of had a freak out and decided maybe in December through a, without getting too many details that I didn't really want to be an iBanker. I sort no disrespect to iBankers, but I just, I sort of thought about the lifestyle. I saw a lot of people who didn't have, you know, who were divorced and had all sorts of complicated issues. And I was like, you know what, this is, this is not who I am. (laughs) And, uh, and I was, I was sort of consuming a ton of online sports content as I always had, but really at the time it's winter, not a lot else to do. And I sort of like got fixated on two observations about sports, uh, the online sports ecosystem, which was one, I was on a college campus with a ton of other people my age. And it felt like the way the digital sports properties of that era were talking about sports, the way they created sports content was really out of touch with how my generation used sports in their lives. Sports content was not especially shareable, snackable, entertaining. It was a lot of, let's just say, mostly older sports writers, maybe writing for their peer group. So I I felt like my generation needed their own sports voice. And then I was an economics, I was an economics and history major, but I was taking a bunch of cool economics electives at the time. And I was pretty into them. And I just like sort of saw the entire world through the lens of supply and demand, like all the time. And I just sort of noticed that there seemed to be these huge inefficiencies. And it's sort of like, that's relevant to the business I'm now starting as well in in the climate space. But there seemed to be huge inefficiencies around where there was actual demand for content and then what was being created. So there were certain topics, like the Major League Baseball All-Star Game is an example I've given a lot over the years where huge deal in the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, into the 80s. By the time you get to 2005, it's not as big of a deal as it used to be. Yet every national outlet and local outlet in the country is still flying a reporter to the all-star game, paying for a hotel, having them cover it. And not many sports fans in the U S really care. It just didn't hold the same significance yet. There were other events, some of them more transactional, like the NFL draft or the NBA trade deadline or free agency periods where engagement levels were just off the charts. Yet the coverage from Media companies were in a, tended to be in a tight window and there wasn't as much of it and it wasn't of the quality that I thought was possible. So I became very fixated on the idea that you could use data to figure out what teams should get more coverage, what topics should get more coverage. And yeah, those were the two sort of hypotheses that led me to say like, I want to start a digital sports company. And you know, you were so right. And it's so true exactly when you look back at that time and just living through it and understanding the transition from kind of when we were reading the box scores as kids and the articles and Sports Illustrated. And you hit on this exact time and you had this idea. And you're, I assuming, like, I want to start this business, but how do you go about it? How do you do it? Did you even have kind of a plan? Yeah, I had no idea what I was doing. My first instinct was to get other smart people involved. So I made a PowerPoint presentation and sent it out to, I don't know, something like eight friends and said, Hey, I really want to do this. This is going to be a really cool project. Who's up to do it with me? And uh, my good friend, Brian Goldberg was the my first friend who responded and said, Hey, this is cool. I'll do this with you. And then our other friend, Dave Nemitz, got involved maybe a month later. 
And uh, we sort of started by honestly having to figure out the tech, like the tech stack. Because back then, getting a website off the ground was not nearly as seamless as it was it was today. None of us were technologists, so we we really spent like the first twelve to twenty four months figuring out like how are we how are we actually going to create a platform, both a, the back end aspect of the platform and then the front end aspect that is is going to manifest like what we want to ultimately create. So we knew nothing about that. And I would just say that we we sort of grinded away at it day after day, talked to a lot of people, worked with a lot of people. And just over time that getting the reps in, we started to slowly build expertise, which just wasn't something that happened overnight, but we were very dedicated to it. And it took a lot of time, but we got there. Yeah. I mean, it was a formative time when you started this, I guess, in digital media overall. And, you know, what do you think Bleacher Report's contribution was to kind of the evolution of digital media? I think on the sports side, I'd like to think that we we shook things up quite a bit and pushed both traditional publishers to change their strategies. We started, I think, really disrupting the sports ecosystem sort of on the data side, showing showing how valuable data could be to make sort of better content production decisions that would lead to bigger audiences. And then we we leveraged that and built, uh, built a very successful newsletter program where we had over 200 fan bases receiving newsletters regularly. We had certain newsletters that had over 20,000 subscribers, Alabama, LSU, Auburn, football all come to mind where the open rates of the newsletters during peak periods were over 70%. It was just just insane numbers compared to industry standards, which is more like 12%. And we we really focused on curating the sports ecosystem for them. So the whole experience for fans was very fragmented. There was information in blogs that people had never heard of on ESPN, on local sites. And it just wasn't a great user experience to have to hunt it all down. Um, if you were on Google News or some sort of aggregator, you'd often see the same content basically over and over again. So we essentially put together a, a custom digest, a curated digest for those fan bases and, and the product just crushed. And again, the, like what I'm doing now, like a lot of what we're trying to do is curate the climate space. So I'm, a, I'm a, actually a big believer in curating and organizing information and then packaging it to people in a way that we're framing it for them in a way that that is relatable to them. And I think there's not quite enough of that in, in a bunch of spaces in the internet to this day. But in, in sports, yeah, it started with data, then showed that you could create more personalized experiences for sports fans. We did that with a newsletter. Our app was really the first big app that allowed you to just follow the teams and topics that you wanted to. So that was sort of like disrupting Sports Center, where the old model was, hey, if I'm a 49ers fan and it's football season and Sports Center is an hour, I might have to wait until minute 43 to get my 49ers highlight. Very different to imagine that for a kid today, but that's how it used to be. And we thought, well, if you're not an NHL fan, like, why are we going to make you sit through the NHL highlights? We'll just allow you to customize all the things that you follow. And if you're into Kobe Bryant, you can follow Kobe Bryant. If you're into like Yeezy sneakers, you can follow Yeezy sneakers. If you're into more traditional sports stuff and you want to follow the um, the New York Islanders, like follow the New York Islanders. That was a breakthrough. And then we, we sent so many newsletters out. We sent so many push notifications out through our app. We just collected an immense amount of data around voice in particular. How do we... Our goal was to speak to sports fans in more of a peer-to-peer fashion. Like we wanted to be their friend that was helping them sort of like get the good stuff. And then when social platforms started pushing third-party publisher content, like I won't have this exactly right, but I think Facebook in 2012 or 2013 averaged 
500 minutes a month per user, something like that, which is the biggest number in the world. Once they started pushing third-party content, once people could see Bleacher Report in their news feeds, I think Facebook's average minutes per month per user jumped up to like 1,200 minutes a month. I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was there's a reason why they did that from a business standpoint. And that created huge opportunities for publishers. And we we had so many reps through our app and through newsletters that we were able to, I, th- I think, construct pretty smart strategies on social. And we did incredibly well on Facebook initially, on Twitter. I think Bleach Report to this day maybe still has the most Twitter interactions of any account in the world. It's not the biggest account, but at the reach on Twitter is massive. We became a behemoth on Instagram, did really well on every social platform we spent time. Um, we were able to, to build new brands, acquire accounts. Um, I bought I bought House of Highlights when it had a few hundred thousand followers. So it just had such a special voice. And we scaled that up to, I think now they have almost 40 million followers. Wow. And uh, it sort of allowed us to... Our expertise in voice and data really allowed us to see like, where is their white space around the sports world, the more traditional sports world? Like we went after soccer in a big way. Um, I started a brand called BR Football that has quite large scale these days on Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter. And so, yeah, it was a strategy that happened to be sort of right time, right right place. And in terms of the broader media ecosystem, I did. I think there were a lot of tactics we used that certainly either influenced or were you know repeated in pretty direct ways by by a lot of the big players in the space and i think we all feel good about the the role we play just sort of pushing the digital media ecosystem forward yeah I, I think you really revolutionized just how and really started kind of that first step of how almost everyone even myself to this day i, I that's what i check i go to police report i check the jets i look under there i see all the twitter feeds all the stories it's ideal more from our guests but first a word from our sponsors think about a bicycle It takes balance to get where you want to go. Now, think about business. Whatever your business or organization, you ride the line between numbers and people. Just like the bike, it takes balance. CLA, CPAs, consultants, and wealth advisors. That's CLA. We'll get you there. Clifton Larson Allen LLP Investment Advisory Services are offered through Clifton Larson Allen Wealth Advisors LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. And our next sponsor. By now, you've probably heard all about cryptocurrencies. You might even already be investing in them. But did you know that you can invest in cryptocurrencies through your retirement account? That's right. With iTrust Capital, you can buy and sell cryptocurrencies from a crypto IRA and get all the same tax advantages as a traditional IRA. iTrust Capital allows you to invest in over two dozen of the most popular cryptocurrencies. And unlike the stock market, you can buy and sell 24 hours a day. The iTrust Capital platform is easy to use, and it only takes a few minutes to create your account. Setting up an IRA is free, and iTrust has no account fees and no monthly fees. It's time to start taking control of your financial future. With iTrust Capital, you can get all the tax benefits of a retirement account while investing in crypto. Sign up today and receive a $100 funding bonus when you open and fund an account. Visit iTrust.com dot capital slash hsh to start investing today that's i trust dot capital slash hsh 
Taxes and conditions apply. Fees apply. Cryptocurrencies are a speculative investment with risk of loss. iTrust Capital Inc. does not provide legal investment or tax advice. Consult with a qualified legal investment or tax professional. And we're back. I want to get to the cool down and your new business. I want to just ask you first, though, you ended up selling Bleacher Report, obviously, as we know, and I think it was back in 2012. And what was at that time in terms of where you were as an entrepreneur? What was the reason you decided to sell the business? Yeah, to be honest, I really say it was two things. One, I feel like highlights and live rights in sports are, uh, especially at the time, were a critical part of of scaling audience, um, scaling revenue, scaling our brand. And we felt like we weren't going to go raise a couple of billion dollars to go get into the live rights business. And unless you have live rights at the time, you weren't getting digital rights. And so we, we felt like our long-term future was probably always going to be partnering with a larger media company. We happened to fit really well with Turner. They didn't have a digital property. Their sort of voice, like if you watch Inside the NBA, it's it's a little bit lighter. They didn't take themselves quite as seriously. Neither did we at the time. And they, when we had conversations with other media companies, they were thinking of slotting us in as sort of like the JV to something they already had. Like, hey, we can use your platform to really expand our high school football coverage. And that that was never of any real interest to us. And Turner made it very clear that they believed in our vision, that they were going to let us run the business fairly autonomously, which we ended up doing for years um, because I think of how well the business performed post-acquisition. And uh, it was also you know, financial, to be, to be honest. We sold the business for a little over $200 million. Um, we felt like the, the cap on what the business could be worth in that marketplace was probably something that was like 300. It felt like, okay, we've got probably the perfect partner that had, they had reached out to us. We weren't selling the business and they'd made a compelling offer. And it was sort of like, do we, do we want to keep going here and run the risk of, of overextending ourselves? I think a lot of other digital media companies raised money at massive valuations around that time or a little bit thereafter. And it became really hard just to sort of get back to those valuations. Yeah. And I, I think we were, were a little bit shrewd about that, thinking like, is this a billion-dollar business as a standalone Probably not. Is it a $300 million business? It could be, but the amount of risk required and the, the work required to get to that when somebody like a Turner, who's the perfect partner, might go and move on to somebody else, which I think they would have done had we not taken it, sort of led us to say, you know what? Everybody makes a bunch of money here. It's a big success. They're the right partner. Let's not be too greedy here. None of us have any money. So yeah, combination of factors. Yeah, it's amazing because you, you know, looking back in hindsight, and I always think about that and obviously making the right move. And you think of so many companies that hold on and hold on, you know, Groupon comes to mind where they get these incredible offers and they're thinking they're much more valuable or worth much more. And really the way you're able to look at it and understand that I think is so important because there's a lot of stories obviously out there about incredible businesses or businesses that were really gaining a lot of traction that then at the end of the day, just kind of go down the other slope. And one other thing before we get to the cool down, you then, did you step away at that point or did you stay on for a little longer? Yeah, I ended up running the business through 2014. And then at the end of 2014, 
there was there's something else I wanted to, to go try. And so Bleach Report CTO and I left our full-time jobs. Um, they created sort of they created a board. It was an unusual board structure as part of it, but I became the chairman of that board. Mm-hmm. So I stayed, I stayed involved from a strategic standpoint, but I totally stepped away from day to day. And then we worked on that business for um, a little over a year and sort of kept in good contact with with all the you know the powers that be at, at Turner and Time Warner. And then they they made a decision that they wanted to really double down on Bleacher Report. And they decided that they were going to make an incremental $100 million business, investment into the business. And they acquired our company to have me come back and, and run that. And uh, it was a tough decision, but you know a chance to sort of play ball at that level with that type of cash um, about something I cared so much about was just like a little too tough to turn down. So yeah, I ended up coming back for three and a half years. We doubled the company's revenue at a time where revenue got pretty challenging. Um, we built the brand into something much more massive than it had been previously. And I think did a lot of other great things during that period. And I, I got to work on the TV side a little bit. I was involved in a lot of high-level strategic conversations sort of at the Time Time Warner and Turner levels. And we were acquired by AT&T during that time period. Yeah. So it was Super valuable learning experience. Yeah, no regrets. <laughs> so now you're on to your third digital media startup. It's called yeah. it's called the Cooldown, and I, yeah. I want you just to explain because it seems like also this is obviously a passion of yours, sports being one of them. If you can explain to the audience really what the Cooldown is and kind of your vision. Yeah, we're going to grow the cooldown into hopefully the the leading hub for information, useful information about climate and also product recommendations um, that are related to the transition that I think is inevitably corporations and, um, and consumers are going to go through where for consumers, the products that many of us buy today are going to shift a little bit. We're going to buy different products that are are less polluting than um, a lot of the products that we've historically bought that are more wasteful um, or that present more health challenges to us and our families. There are just a lot of products out there that are better. Some of them are cheaper. And we want to help people just to have the best information they have so that they can make really good decisions for them and their families. I was a longtime Barrier resident. We started having regular wildfire and smoke seasons in 2014. I think a lot of the people live in the country and haven't been through something like that. I know there there's now extreme weather basically everywhere and it's impacted certain places more than others. But for me, by the time it happened the second or third time and we were having young kids, we were having kids and have babies at the time, a light bulb just went off for me that this was something that was happening here and now and that it was likely getting worse. I sort of had a preconceived notion prior to that that these were things that were maybe going to happen later in my lifetime or in my kids' lifetimes, but it it sort of created a sense of urgency. I, I wanted to learn a lot more about really the science and the levers and what solutions were feasible and cost-effective and what sources of pollution were the most harmful. And I, I ended up just going deep on the space and I listened to a lot of podcasts and just consumed a lot of content, sort of like sports. Um, and I came to a similar conclusion and I had not been looking to start a business in the climate space at all, but that the information in the space, basic information, then also product information. And I just think products are inherently tied to climate. We live in a capitalist consumer-based society. People are going to keep consuming stuff. Do we want them to people to take advantage of, of more 
circular economies where they're buying less stuff. Sure, when you can, but realistically, people are going to buy stuff. And I just realized that the way information is being delivered to people right now is, is about this is really confusing. And it's oftentimes it's alienating because people are being talked down to. So many people are in different places on this. You have the eco crowd that's been there for a long time. They view the world in one way. You have people in all sorts of other places that are, you have moms all over the country that, that want to be less wasteful, but they're getting conflicting information about whether their individual choices matter at all. And uh, it turns out that if you really go down rabbit holes, you can figure a lot of this stuff out. And there are things that you can be doing. Um, there, are, there are things that are really interesting to understand. And I, I think like trillions and trillions of dollars are going to move over the coming decades sort of around this transition we're going to make. I think there are a lot of opportunities for a lot of people as a result of it. But I think they're going to need help. And so the cool down is fundamentally, and right now we're, we're just starting with a website and a TikTok account and an Instagram account as a way of building some audience and testing messaging that works and building an early community. But the idea is really to eventually create a great user experience where people can get any information they want about things related to climate. And then also we want to make it as easy as possible for people to see what products are out there that we, when we'll do the hard work for you, we have product experts, sustainability product experts who um, will give you a few options and just say, hey, this might be what you're buying today. Here's why maybe you should consider something else. And let's let's show you the pricing. Let's show you how you can save money. Let's show you how it's healthier for your kids, how it's better for the environment. And just say, here are the facts. You make the decision and just make that as easy for people as possible. And uh, yeah, it's not we're not going to get there overnight. Bleacher Report took years to sort of really before I was happy with it. But I, I think there are going to be some really big digital businesses built sort of in and around whatever you want to call it, the climate, extreme weather spaces, because these are transitions that we as a society are, are going to be making. What have been your biggest challenges so far? Anything unexpected from when you jumped into this? That's a great question. I sort of, I a little bit forgot just how how challenging the first stage is. Um, the first stage of before you get product market fit is uh, before you have sort of your processes set and figure out like, okay, this is like, we know this is the right way to structure this. This is the right way to set things up. You know, it's in the early stages of being an entrepreneur you have to get together a group of really passionate, smart people with great work ethics. And you have to be very rigorous about testing things and then moving on from them when they don't work. But then sometimes giving things enough time to sort of breathe where you can really figure out that the data you're collecting is, is legitimate. And uh, yeah, definitely just sort of going back to like how, like remembering that the first phase really is the, the hardest phase. But even now we've been at this for one week, three, and we've, we've already sort of have two or three things figured out that, hey, like this really works. This is, um, we should invest more time in turning this from maybe where it is now, where it's maybe a B or a B minus and turning this into an A versus some other things we're trying or we might say, hey, like this isn't it. This doesn't actually fit our our mission as well as we thought it would, or it does, but we're going to um, we're gonna get back to it in six months once we do a great job with this other stuff. So I think it's just like getting back to being very, very structured around sort of like how you systematically go through and make sure you're doing something well enough where people actually find value in it. And then um, once you have one thing nailed down, you sort of move to the next thing versus I think the trap as an entrepreneur is to always say, hey, it's so important that we do these six things well. And long-term at scale, it probably is. But when you're first trying to get traction, 
sometimes it's okay just to be great at one thing. So some of those, like relearning those lessons that I've probably, I've probably told other entrepreneurs that 8,000 times over the last 10 years, but doing it yourself is, it's a different thing. It just is. Yeah. It's amazing at building a few businesses myself and just starting another uh, podcast agency, pod tech company recently. You forget. I remember we've started two years ago, but just at that beginning stage, I always thought like the next company, it's going to be so much easier. And then the next one, it's easy because anyone you're knocking on their door, they all answer it, you know, like you've done. And one of the hardest things I learned was that no matter what it is, that you still have to like dig in, put that effort in. And I know I'm sure that's what you've done. And I know this time too, you you chose a partner as well to work with. Yeah. I knew going into this that I needed a really strong partner. I always like, I like doing these things as partnerships. And I was, I was looking for someone with a very strong content leadership background. We're, we're hoping to eventually become a, a place that people who are really talented, who, um, who want to work on climate uh, in sort of the communication space go to like at the end of the day, like our job is to create a great environment for talented people to come and, and do awesome work. And like, we will help to guide and nurture them, but like so much of it is about the people. So yeah, I got to know um, Anna Robertson who had like an amazingly impressive background. Uh, she was a longtime producer for Diane Sawyer, like right when she graduated from college and flew all around the world, sourcing news stories. She started the video team at Yahoo and uh, um, for years since, has been an executive at Disney working on all sorts of different strategic initiatives, ranging from local news to National Geographic. And she's incredibly passionate about climate. There are people out there who are incredibly passionate about climate. There are not as many of them that have, have really strong content leadership backgrounds and understand how to really program to more mainstream audiences. And I think that's really the key for us where there's so much of like this space is really dominated by more like what I'd call early adopters, like the people who brought bought the Priuses early and bought the, even if they didn't think of it this way, bought the Teslas early. But we're starting to reach a tipping point with certain categories. Electric vehicles are one of them. Solar panels are another. Where There are lots of different things where we're starting to transition from that early adopter audience to more of an early majority audience, which is a much, much bigger group of people. And I, I really value having a partner who understands which messaging, which types of content can resonate with that early adopter audience. Because I think in climate, it's very easy to fall into the trap of sort of ending up targeting more of an eco audience. And even we were just in very early days and we're still falling into it sometimes too. But we we will be very, very good in time at speaking to lots of different constituencies. And you know, the same way we'd speak to Alabama football fans totally differently than we'd speak to Seattle Seahawks fans. Those two people would never consume the same content. The way we talk to fishermen um, or fly fishermen or or hunters are probably going to be very different than than how we talk to maybe people in inner cities about environmental justice. Or they're they're just, they're different sort of audience cohorts here. And we we really need to understand how to speak to all of them. So it's a big meaty data project, to be honest. But it's it's super exciting because I I think I think there's a like there's a playbook here that's pretty well understood and and given given some time and and capital, I think we'll build something that'll be pretty meaningful to a lot of people. Yeah, it, it just how you're saying it and having to talk to different audiences and going back to your beginnings at Bleacher and understanding that the content that was being put out at the time wasn't really speaking to audiences, but this, this is a real big 
initiative in terms of climate and people's perceptions. So I could totally imagine how much you're digging in and learning and figuring it out. And I'm, I'm sure you will, of course, and knowing from your background. But before I let you go, you know, I want to ask you as a founder, I guess, investor now, what do you look for in new startups and maybe any advice? You know, we have a lot of listeners who are starting out entrepreneurs or, or they're on the diving board. They need, you know, they're, they're, they're standing there. They want to take the leap, but any advice you could give as being someone like yourself, who's been so successful in, in really all the businesses you've created. There's so many things, but what I look back on most are honestly the people that I've built things with. It's sort of a little bit BS. This, the way our society works is, you know, the, the person who's at the top ends up being the name and getting a lot of credit. In the case of Bleacher Report, and I think it'll be the same for the cooldown, I played a key role as a, I was an important member of a, of a team, but there were, there were other people that played their roles perfectly. And if you pulled any of those key people out, I don't think Bleacher Report would have become what it became. And so I, I think that hiring and culture in the early days are so incredibly important. Our culture at Bleacher Report was in the early days was just incredible. Um, it was like the most special group of people I've ever been around. We had people who so believed in what we were doing that embraced an underdog mentality and became evangelists in the company as we scaled. Uh, whereas the company got bigger and bigger, there were just certain things that we did that if you were going to be successful, you know, you, you needed to get on board with them. And those people would make sure that you got on board. And I, I love those people and, uh, um, they'll always be a big part of my life. And I, I just like, if you can nurture a culture where people really believe in what you're doing, I just, I think the odds of success go up so much because people will just, they'll just go above and beyond in so many different ways. If, if they really truly care beyond it just being a paycheck and a way they can get through their day. So, yeah. And it sounds like obviously with some of the things you're involved with and from sports to climate you have those folks. It's just about getting the right people. And, and lastly, I just want to ask you, this is the first business I would assume, just like I'm starting one now, where we're building it in a time where we have 20 employees. They're all over the, like literally the world now. I've never built yeah. a business like that. What's your thoughts? How have you thought about culture and building that connection in this type of environment? I got some good reps at Bleacher Report in the sense that we we ended up having three large offices and then a good we really embraced hiring software engineers remotely felt my last three or four years because it was you could get better people at rates that weren't where you weren't competing with Google and Facebook. At the cooldown, is it we we have one like I think we're doing a good job leaning on on people on our team who are a little bit earlier in their careers and are sort of like living the culture that we're sort of trying to represent in a lot of ways. And like, we've just have really cool people on the team with great personalities. And to some extent, like we're just, we're letting them steer things a little bit. We do, we do like a monthly get together event where somebody takes charge of it. And it's either some kind of trivia or some kind of game where everybody just sort of like lets their hair down a little bit. If they want to have some drinks, they can have some drinks. And uh, our team like has like pretty good shorthand with each other. Like even during when we do Zooms or Google Hangouts or whatever, like there's like nonstop comments going on in the comment thread. Mm-hmm. And sometimes people get a little bit distracted, but it's it's fine um, because it's that's the type of stuff that needs to happen in order for people to get comfortable with one another. 
I also have really emphasized like getting off Slack and getting on the phone sometimes. I think that's a big thing of just like, hey, I expect you to be on the phone. It's okay to give somebody a phone call. If somebody calls you, pick up. You need to be comfortable enough with everybody on the team to give them a call. And uh, I don't know, we've just like, we have guest speakers. We, we're trying to do things that just make make it feel like we're sort of all part of a team and that this is... I'm not saying we do a great job of it every day, but I think when when a company feels like a, a fun project you're all working on versus feeling like a a job, <laughs> a way it's a way better thing of way of doing things. And we get to get like we're doing our next company offsite, and I live in Bend, Oregon. We're doing the company offsite here in mid September. We're going to spend about half our time, you know, in a boardroom, and then we're going to spend the rest of our time on the river and hiking and doing a barbecue. And it's I I, I just think that matters so much. Yeah, uh, totally agree. I think just from a standpoint of getting people out, especially going up where you are now and in Bend and how beautiful it is and just getting groups together more often, not so much for the in-conference room business talk at the hotel, but just the connection I think is going to be such an important part. But Dave, you have an incredible story. Really appreciate you coming on and, and talking about your days uh, starting Bleacher and, and of course now with the cool down and just to say it's such an important project. I mean, we both love sports and, but you know, when you're talking about you have kids now, I have kids and how we leave the planet, it's so important. And um, I will say, I do hope the Jets do well because we have about half of the San Francisco 49ers team now and coaching staff. So hopefully you'll root for them in the AFC. I've got a, Elijah Moore is one of the keepers this year on my fantasy team. So I'm, I like I'm, that. Uh, I'm, I'll be a big fan of the Jets passing game. So right. I'm, I'm with you. Same page. All right. I'm hoping, man. It's from the guy who started Bleacher Report. I'll take that. So yeah. uh, in any case, though, thanks again for coming on and uh, best of luck to you with the cool down. Thanks a lot, Robert. Appreciate it. And that's our episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to How Success Happens wherever you get your podcasts. We come out with a new episode every Wednesday morning, and you don't want to miss it. And if you like to share, please feel free to pass along the show to an entrepreneur friend who could use a boost, and I could always use the subscribers. And do you have ideas for guests? I always love to hear about great entrepreneurs. If you know anyone, shoot me an email at hsh at entrepreneur.com or on Twitter at Robert Tuckman. that's R-O-B-E-R-T, T-U-C-H-M-A-N, or even send me a message on LinkedIn. How Success Happens is a production of Entrepreneur Media. Be sure to visit entrepreneur.com for insight on building your business, or even better yet, subscribe to our magazine. No joke, I found my first job after reading about a company in Entrepreneur Magazine back in the 1990s. It's always been my absolute favorite magazine for entrepreneurs. Thanks for listening and spending some time with me today. Until next time, my name is Robert Tuckman, just a fellow entrepreneur and your host. See you soon.